chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? You're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them. And I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up. Come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle. The harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. Vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes... In the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. The Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall never, excuse me, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills all, excuse me, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. So let us ask His blessing on our study this morning in a brief word of prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we come to a text, a portion of Your Word, rich with images, bubbling and bristling with truth. Lord, truth which 
and console our hearts. And so we pray that you would do that this morning, Lord. Illuminate our hearts and our minds to the truths here contained. Lord, apply them to us that we might trust you and look towards that day when these things shall be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there can be no doubt that we inhabit a world which is filled with injustice. And certainly we try to maintain some degree of justice. The codification of laws, the work of the judicial system, the presence of law enforcement, they all testify to that fact that we're trying. Nevertheless, when we... We're honest with ourselves when we reckon with the imperfections in all of these systems. Uh, when we take note of the many ways in which fallen, our fallen nature corrupts the consistent execution of justice, we come away with the conclusion that sinful humanity is simply incapable of being perfectly just in its present state. And this conclusion, if you're thinking about it, really should raise a couple of questions for you. First, if that's the way things are, if we simply do and will continue to live in a world ripe with injustice, how should we live as Christians? How should we conduct ourselves under these circumstances? And second, how does this state of affairs harmonize with our belief that a perfectly just and righteous God is providentially in control of all things. Is there a contradiction here? Or can we hold our theological beliefs together in harmony with the realities of this earthly realm? Our sermon text this morning provides us really with answers to these questions, which we're going to seek to identify later in the sermon. But, but before we do so, let's take a moment as we come to the close of this book to reflect on how we got to Joel chapter 3. In the first chapter of this little book, the prophet took stock of the fact that recent devastating locust plagues in the promised land were signs of God's covenant judgment. Therefore, the people were called there in that chapter to to mourn over their present state and to repent of their sins. Then in chapter 2, the prophet built upon that message. He, he used the imagery of the locust invasion in order to describe what would happen in the future, on the coming day of the Lord, if Judah did not heed the call to repent right now. A future judgment would be uh, far worse than what had been experienced with the locusts. And so God's people were urgently exhorted to repent so that the Lord might relent of potential disaster. And then at the end of chapter 2, we read of God's promises to His covenant people. In the near term, the locusts would be removed, the abundance of the land would be restored, and in the long run, God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh, saving those who called upon the name of the Lord from the, the heavenly army which will execute justice at His coming. So as we watch the flow of the book, we, we find that the law which is maintained early in the book, which is pressed home upon the recipients of this prophecy, that 
that sense of law and dread gives way to gospel declarations in the latter half of the book. We move from the bad news to the good news, generally speaking. But, if one were to only read the first two chapters of Joel, then the gospel promises at the end of chapter 2 would actually open up a big plot hole in the story of redemption. We've talked so much already in this book about the day of the Lord. We've, we've heard these promises that Judah will not have to endure what has been declared. And so if Judah's repentance is sufficient to save it from the destruction of the last day, then what will happen on that day? We end at the end of chapter 2, that question is left unanswered. If it's not the annihilation of God's unfaithful covenant people, then what? Joel 3, Joel 3 gives us our answer. What is it that we find here? Well, Joel 3 teaches us that on the day of the Lord, the just judge will judge every last enemy and restore the fortunes of his people. He will judge every last enemy. He will restore the fortunes of his people. And therefore, practically speaking, we can press on in this world full of injustice with trust and hope. We want to consider that teaching this morning as we make our way through this chapter. And we're going to divide our text up into three sections. First of all, we come to the courtroom scene in verses 1 to 8, where Yahweh indicts the nations. The second, we come to the call to arms in verses 9 to 16, where Yahweh is going to call up the nations so that He might punish them. And finally, we come, we come to the coming restoration in verses 17 to 21, where Yahweh will bless the people among whom He dwells. So that is the division we'll use this morning. Uh, the courtroom scene, the call to arms, and the coming restoration in Joel chapter 3. First then, we come to the courtroom scene in verses 1 to 8 where Yahweh indicts the nations. Now our text begins with a time marker which clearly identifies the events of this chapter with the future. We read in verse 1 that the events described here occur in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Now we might be initially inclined to think that this restoration of Judah's fortune is a reference to Judah's recovery from the locust plague. That's been talked about in the book. However, the language of those days and that time comes at the heels of the announcement of the pervasive futuristic outpouring of the Spirit which would take place at Pentecost. And so the, the oracle of chapter 3 speaks to events which will take place in what is elsewhere called the latter days between the first and second coming of Christ. The, the outpouring of the Spirit described in chapter 2 verses 28 to 32 that would inaugurate those latter days while the events of chapter 3 describe what happens at the very end. Of those latter days. So we have here from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3 the bookends of the time between the first and second coming of Christ. 
And specifically we read, in those days and at that time when the Lord restores the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, we're told that He will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There, He will enter into judgment with them on behalf of His people and His heritage, Israel. So, note the picture. The picture here is of Yahweh the judge summoning the nations to act as defendants on behalf of Judah, the plaintiff. They are to come forth to hear their case heard, and it is to be heard in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Since this prophecy lists a particular location where the judgment will take place, you might wonder where to find it on a map. Here's an answer that you might find unsatisfactory. You won't find it on a map. Okay, The valley of Jehoshaphat will not be on any maps that you look at. It's not a known location, either today or in history. So, so why is it introduced to us here as the location of this judgment scene? Well, consider the significance of the name. Uh, that, that name Jehoshaphat in Hebrew is rich with symbolism. It's a, it's a composite term made up of two words which taken together can be translated Yahweh judges. So, so, so to speak of the valley of Jehoshaphat is to speak of the valley where Yahweh judges. And again, while we can't place that valley on a map with any certainty. Tradition has often associated it with the Kidron Valley, which lies between uh, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives to the east. And if, if we're really meant to envision an actual place in Judah, that's probably as good a guess as we can get because of its proximity to Jerusalem. And so that's really the best that we can deal with that question. And with that question dealt with, we ask, what is it? that will take place in the valley of Jehoshaphat when the nations are assembled at the beck and call of the Lord. The Lord will indict them for their wickedness. Again, we read beginning verse 2, I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. Now if you remember our introduction to this book, now uh, some time ago, you will perhaps recall that biblical scholars and theologians are deeply divided about when this book was written. And uh, we did not try at that time to uh, totally uh, solve that puzzle. But since that's the case, uh, you, you probably will understand why uh, they are also deeply divided in their understanding of what event in history these descriptions of sin in this indictment are referring to. Uh, there, there are different proposals as to when something like this, where the, you have the scattering, the dividing up, the casting lots for people, uh, when that might have happened. There are lots of, of different proposals, and, and frankly, uh, we won't try to settle that today either. The pertinent, the pertinent point to note, really, is that the nations are being indicted for seizing privileges which belonged to God alone 
and then using them to sin. Think about it. When God brought Israel up out of Egypt, He did so in order to settle them together in a particular land which He was giving to them. And then He sovereignly led them in the distribution and allotment of that land as the book of Joshua describes in detail. So for the nations to scatter what God had gathered and to divide up what the Lord had already doled out was for the nations to attempt a reversal of the redemptive plan of God. They were trying to reverse what the Lord had done through the exodus and through the conquest. And what's more, we're told that they used the spoils of this effort in order to fuel their sin. Training children, we're told, for sex or wine. Wickedness. And for these sins, the Lord enters into a dispute with the nations in verse 4, mentioning some of the traditional enemies of Israel by name. The Lord inquires, what are you to me? O Tyre and Sinai, all the regions of Philistia, are you paying me back for something? In other words, God is asking His enemies to justify themselves. Why have they harassed Judah so? Is it because God did something wrong? Is this some twisted attempt at payback? If it is, it won't end well. The Lord declares to them, if you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. And how will He pay back their payback? Well, verse seven, excuse me, 5 to 7, He does just that by reading them their charges and issuing a sentence. As enemies of God's People waged war against them. They had taken silver, gold, which had really belonged to the Lord. They carried it off into pagan lands. Likewise, they took captives from Judah and Jerusalem in order to sell them to sinners beyond the sea. Those are the charges. And while the wicked may have thought that by sending God's people far away, they would be able to safely enjoy their plunder and peace, it was not to be so. For in verse 7, we come to the sentence which is a reversal of its own. The Lord says, Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. See, God tells the wicked here that the day is coming when He will bring His exiled people home and pay back their captors using the standard of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The captors would become the captives. The slavers would become the slaves. The exilers would become the exiled. And surely this promise of payback is in fulfillment of the promise found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 7. There, there God's people are told that when they repent of their sin they will be restored. And, note this, the Lord your God will put all these curses, curses which had formerly been placed on sinful Israel, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. It's returned on their own head. So, so in the first phase of the revelation of the latter days day of the Lord, we find ourselves in the courtroom. Yahweh acts as both prosecuting attorney and judge, bringing the case against the nation 
for the sins against his people and then condemning them for that sin. But as we come to verse 9, the rhetoric ramps up even further. The imagery escalates as we move from the courtroom to the battlefield. Here we have a call to arms as the Lord prepares to punish the guilty who have been indicted. Once again, we have the setting of the scene. With the nations summoned to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the Lord says, proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. Your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Whereas earlier in the book, Israel was to consecrate themselves for a fast. The nations are called to consecrate themselves for war. Yahweh, you see, the Lord intends to engage in holy combat with those whom He's deemed guilty. And we see that this coming war is an unavoidable conflict which none of the wicked can avoid. Not only are the mighty men called to fight, but notice so too are the weak, the infirm. They, they too will be forced to play the part of the warrior. On that day. In fact, so large is the indicted enemy force in the valley of Jehoshaphat on the coming day of the Lord that plowshares and pruning hooks are, are converted from agricultural tools to implements for war just so that everyone can be armed. This is all out pervasive war. And while the battle being described here is still futuristic, even from our own perspective, even in Joel's day, notice, the summons was one which came with urgency. The nations are told to hasten, come up, gather. Time to fight. And even as the nations are gathering, pay careful attention, something else is happening as well. This will not be a fair fight. And you'll notice a brief remark at the end of verse 7, which almost reads like a, a parenthetical. I think this is what it is. I believe it is a parenthetical prayer offered by the prophet himself. In an apparent interruption of the flow of thought, we read these words, Bring down your warriors, O Lord. So, so while the, the nations are amassing themselves in the valley of Jehoshaphat, where Yahweh says He will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Their opposing force is also gathered. But in this context, it's not Israel that is slated to fight for the Lord on that day. Instead, it's that heavenly day of the Lord army which was first described in chapter 2. The prophet now calls upon them to come on down, ready themselves for battle as well. And then as we come to verse 13... The warriors who were called down from heaven are commanded to begin their work. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. These heavenly warriors are to cut down the nations like wheat. They are to crush the nations like grapes. They are to press the nations like olives in the press. And lest we be 
under any delusion at this point that this describes anything less than the final coming cosmic judgment of the Lord. We read in verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun, the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. See, brothers, this is a picture of the end. And while the announcement of the day of the Lord was meant to spur God's chosen people onto repentance, at this point in the story, in Joel chapter 3, repentance is not in view. Some have thought that when the prophet speaks of the valley of decision, it's a reference to the decision which the nations have to make. And that's evangelistically perhaps effective. Come make your decision. Note the realities of the valley of decision. But the decision here is not the decision of the nations. At this point in the book of Joel, the nations have already cast their lot. That's how they've wound up here. Instead, the decision is the Lord's. It's His decision to judge. This reason some have translated this phrase not as the valley of decision, but as the valley of the verdict. Where the verdict is read and the sentence is carried out. Where God's decree is executed. And these events are fleshed out in vivid detail in the pages of the New Testament. For example, we read in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and following, the Son of Man coming in glory at the end of the age, gathering the nations before Him. And when we do so, we're, we're told He separates the sheep from the goats, He ushers the sheep into His kingdom, while the goats He casts into eternal hellfire. At the, at the close of Christ's description of the judgment on the wicked, He summarizes the events of that day, saying, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. <laughs> Even more colorful is the description found in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 20, uh, which is part of the book referring to the very end time judgment. And it's a passage where many of the images and symbols of Joel chapter 3 are taken up afresh. And in fact, the passage is so significant that I'm going to read the whole thing for you now, even though it's a bit lengthy. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 20. There we read this. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sickle, a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vines of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Congregation, do you see the doom that awaits the wicked on the day of the Lord? For those who are not in the Lord's favor, that day will be nothing but absolute 
misery. Despite the multitudinous nature, that's a word, of, of the army gathered in the valley of decision, their end will be certain and hasty. But with one swinging of the sickle, we're told, the enthroned Son of Man reaps the earth of its harvest. With, with another swinging of the sickle, by an angel of God, the gates are gathered in. And the result is that the winepress of God's wrath overflows with blood as the heavenly warriors trample the grapes which are ripe for judgment. It ought to be clear to you, I hope it is, that this is not the sort of thing that you want to be on the receiving end of on when the Lord's wrath appears on that day. He will roar like a, like a lion, vindicating His strength and glory. As we, as we read in verse 16, which acts... In many ways, like a hinge in the passage, moving us from hellfire to heavenly lays. We read, the Lord roars from Zion, utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. He, he, he roars against the sinful nations, but He is a refuge and a stronghold for His people. And with that, we move from the courtroom scene, the call to arms, to the coming restoration described in verses 17 to 21, where Yahweh is said to bless the people among whom He dwells. God tells His people through the prophet, but when the day of the Lord's judgment of your enemies is complete, you shall know that I I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, a holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. See, with this proclamation, we are carried out of the valley, up to Mount Zion, the very abode of the Lord. Victorious over the wicked. He is, he's now vindicated here in our text as the faithful covenant God of His people who draws near to them. And with the nations cut down, God's people are able to rest, knowing that Zion shall never more be defiled and, and strangers shall never more even pass through the heavenly Jerusalem above. My friends, this is a picture of eternity. The Lord through the prophet, yeah, he uses, he uses images which the people could understand in order to depict their final and irreversible restoration in this presence. But it is indeed a picture of the end. Consider the picture painted in verse 18, where we read, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. How pregnant is that promise to a people who have been devastated by locusts and drought and famine. Gone are the locusts. Gone is drought. Hunger and thirst, no more. Instead, wine drips down from the mountains. Milk flows through the land of milk and honey again. Water replenishes the land. In fact, flowing 
from a fountain, we're told, in the house of the Lord. Here's a picture of a, of a fountain erupting within the very temple of God. and Flowing its waters over the land. Making for a, a, a verdant and plentiful promised land. This is, this is abundance and prosperity and fruitfulness as has never before been seen. And in fact, you, you see the book of Revelation in its description of the new heavens and the new earth taking up this imagery, which is found elsewhere in the Old Testament, of a, of a fountain coming up in the house of the Lord. There we read, Revelation chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, that heavenly Jerusalem. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. So the picture which is painted here is a, a preface to the picture which is painted at the very end of the book. And it is all pointing us towards the future that awaits those who are in Jesus Christ. And then we come to the end of the book. Where, where the final state of both Judah and the nations is set forth side by side. Egypt and Edom, uh, the embodiment of the enemies of God's people, are brought to nothing for their crimes. Meanwhile, the fortunes of God's people are permanently restored. We read here, but Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood that I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So on the other side of the avenging wrath of God outpoured in the final judgment is eternal life and permanent peace in the presence of the Lord. Communion with God in Zion on His holy hill. That the calls to repentance at this point have ceased. The threats of judgment have been hushed. And what takes their place? Everlasting joy. This is the restoration of Judah and Jerusalem, which is set uh, to take place in those days and at that time. This is the story, really, of the end of the world, told in language, which was immediately understandable by both Joel and his audience. And with this story told, we're better to, equipped to, to answer uh, one of the two questions which we asked at the beginning. We asked earlier, how can we harmonize our belief in God's perfect providential ordering of this world with this, where things are so messed up. If the world is so rotten and so full of injustice, how can we continue in our belief that the God who is control is just and righteous? In light of what we read, we, we know that we can do so because present injustice is a sign of the Lord's patience, not His injustice. That's an important principle. The, 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 the current state of this world, the present injustice, is a sign of the Lord's patience, not His injustice. The Lord has every right to strike down every sinner whenever he or she sins, but He shows patience. He shows mercy. <clears throat> Nevertheless, our passage makes clear that His patience is not endless because there is a coming restoration of the proper order of all things. God has promised that on the day of the Lord, 
He will right every wrong. And perfect justice shall reign forevermore. So we can hold firm to our doctrine of God. With all that it entails. About his sovereign providential ordering of the world. Because the story is still being written. That, that last execution of justice is still in the future. It still awaits. And so we can trust in the Lord today. That he is indeed justice. He is righteousness. And he will exhibit those things in history in due time. So as we come to the end of Joel 3, we've been confronted with the truth that on the day of the Lord, the Lord, as the just judge, will judge every last enemy and restore the fortunes of His people. But, before we close, it's necessary to figure out where we fit into the story that's been told here. To return to the other question that we asked at the outset of our time this morning, how are we to live in this world of injustice? Does Joel 3 inform our answer to that question? And of course it does, otherwise I wouldn't bring it up. So, so let's close this morning by briefly considering four points of application from Joel chapter 4. First of all, this morning, understand that the restored Judah described in this text encompasses all who believe in Jesus Christ. The restored Judah described in this text, encompasses all who believe in Jesus Christ. This may not be immediately obvious in Joel chapter 3, because Joel's depiction of the day of the Lord speaks of a restoration for Judah and total destruction for the nations. And since we are Gentiles, mostly Gentiles, I won't presume, uh, the first recipients of this prophecy would have understood us to be members of the nations. They would have understood us to be members of the nation. So, on the surface, this sounds like a prophecy about our demise. But this is one of those places where we have to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, allowing the New Testament to shed light on the Old Testament. For the original audience of this book, Judah was God's chosen covenant people. Outside of Judah were the heathens who were committed to rebelling against God. In their mind... Because God had covenanted with one particular nation, the dividing line between friend and foe was largely an ethnic distinction. Uh, and you, you can see the residual effects of this way of thinking of things in the New Testament. However, as we come to the New Testament, we, we learn that in Christ, the Israel of God now consists of Jew and Gentile alike. As we've read this morning in Galatians chapter 3, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentile. At the end of the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul refers to the church as the Israel of God. So in the fullness of time, we become part of the Israel of God. We now help to constitute Judah. If you miss that, you're going to have trouble figuring out how to apply this text. Therefore, when we recognize that important principle and consider its relation to judgment passages like those in Matthew 25, we find that on the day of the Lord, the fundamental distinction won't be one of ethnicity. Instead, the distinction will be between those who are in covenant with the Lord by faith in Jesus Christ, and those who remain in unrepentant rebellion against their Creator. It will be between those who bow the knee in allegiance, and those who bow the knee because they have been subjected to the fierce anger of the king. So the Judah which will be restored in those days and at that time is a Judah which will contain both Jewish 
and Gentile believers in the one Lord of all, Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the church and the nations as they are conceived of in Joel chapter 3, will be those who have not sought refuge in Christ in order that they might become heavenly citizens of the heavenly Zion above. So understand that the restored Judah described in this text encompasses all who believe in Jesus Christ. Number two, given this New Testament interpretation of Judah and the nations, your acceptance or rejection of Christ will determine whether you will be found in the valley of decision or on the mountain of the Lord when Jesus comes back. Your acceptance or rejection of Christ will determine whether you will be found in the valley of decision or on the mountain of the Lord when Jesus comes back. So which will it be for you? The difference between those two destinations is as drastic a difference as can be conceived. So it makes all the difference in the world. How then can you assure yourself that you will be found on Zion that day? Joel's already told us. Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You must call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down His life upon the cross in payment for our sins, who rose on the third day that He might give life to the Israel of God. You must believe that while your sin will most assuredly carry you down into the valley, by faith in Christ you can ascend the mountain of the Lord. So repent, believe, call upon His name, because when He comes, He will either be your Savior or your Judge. And He will surely save those who seek refuge in Him. Restored Judah, described in this text, encompasses those who believe. So your acceptance or rejection determines your final destination. And number three, if you are bound for the valley of decision, you ought to tremble. If you are bound for the valley of decision, you ought to tremble. The, the book of Joel gives us a front row seat to the outpouring of the wrath of God upon sins, and the picture that it paints, the horrors which it entails, conjures up a terror far greater than than any amount of Halloween decorations could ever conjure. Uh, This is something much deeper, much greater, much more pressing than all of that. Because He will not overlook transgression forever. He will not leave sin unpunished. Instead, on a day of His own choosing... He will come with a fire of fury to burn up the nations which have hardened themselves against Him. Those who are found in the valley of decision on that day will make their final home where there is eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's there's no good news for those who share this final fate. So if you're not right with God, if your faith is not in Christ, you should tremble. Seek refuge while it still may be found. Finally, our last point of application as we come to close this morning, is that if you are bound for the mountain of the Lord, then you can indeed press on in this world, full of injustice, trusting God, and hoping for the future. You see, we're, we're called, brothers and sisters, 
to press forward through the mud, through the muck, through the mire. With faith, with hope, and with trust. We're called to hold to Christ. We're to continually make the Lord our refuge. We're to find our peace in Him. And we can do so because we've read Joel chapter 3 and we know the end of the story. We know how it's going to turn out. And so we are called, as Joel called uh, his first recipients, to take refuge in the Lord, who is a stronghold for His people. See, on a day not so long from now, Christ Jesus will appear on the clouds with glory to judge both the living and the dead. And those who have trusted Him here below shall be carried up yonder on high to dwell in Zion forever. And justice will give way to perfect justice on that day and all will be well. That, that is a paradigm shifting, life changing truth, if you believe it. So if you're bound for the mountain of the Lord, then I would close this morning by calling you to look up as according to the Word of God your restoration and your redemption are drawing nigh. And in the grand scheme of things, it won't be long now. So let us pray.